This is Meet the Fam, a podcast series from The Way Church for you to get to know The Way family and meet the people like you building a place for you. I'm Matt Rothy, pastor at The Way Church, and I'm joined by our producer, John Boomhofer, and our co-host, Heidi Zell, for part two of a special Meet the Fam episode where we get to sit down and enjoy a conversation with The Way Church's mission counselor, Pastor Mark Burkholz. For part two of this episode, I start by asking Mark about something really relevant to our church today. Churches that are brand new, even when they're growing, experience growing pains and often hit a lull at about the three to four year mark. Our church is three and a half years old. So I ask Mark, what encouragement do you have for a church plant that is three and a half years old and coming out of a really unique season in the church experiencing everything we did with coronavirus. I hope you enjoy this episode. What encouragement do you have for people who have been here uh, since the beginning and who have been a part of all of the mission efforts that we have who who are now experiencing that? The honeymoon period is over and that is only exasperated by 2020 and COVID and what we've experienced with that. Boy, it's... You asked me that question seven days in a row, you might get seven answers, go off in seven tangents, because it's it's a multifaceted reality. Uh, part of it, if, if I was talking to some of the core members at The Way, uh, would be to say, how, how many of the original group are still here? But And usually at the three or four year mark, it'll be 50% or less of the people. Yeah, we're thankful. We're, we're, we're on the north side of that. We're above that. Okay. So that that's exceptional, uh, but but still it would be thirty or forty percent if, if gone away, and and you could say we had talked about this that there will be transitions, and the people who start the church will not be the people running the church ten years later. Uh, another aspect of that is there is such a thing as lay burnout. There really is because people's life changes, their kids are in a different stage, your health is in a different stage, your profession is in a different stage. And if you try in the face of some of those other challenges to came up, keep up the same level of activity, um, you're setting yourself up for, for burnout. Another aspect of it is most people have more than one talent. And if all you've done over the first four years is use that one talent and not explore some of the others, you, you're probably not burned out. You're just bored. And can I add to that? One thing I think is, you know, and maybe I'm I'm biased here, but I think we have multi-talented people at our church mm-hmm. who have done some of everything. And so you never get to focus in on that one thing that you've been interested in or passionate about um, because you've been doing multiple things. Yep. And one answer to that is uh, if you really want to have some fun instead of just feeling a burden, Find somebody who would be willing to take over a role that you've been filling, show them how to do it, and then let them go do it themselves. That That is one of the most rewarding things you can do as far as implementing your talents and the talents of another person. And it uh, kills off that factor of you burning out. I, I think that's helpful. Uh, the progression of watching a second circle of leaders is what I usually call it to just arise. It's people you didn't even know two years ago in many cases. And now you're 
stepping aside so that they can take over a position of leadership and influence. Some people are scared of that. Huh? They might be freaky. They might be an undercover Jehovah's Witness, you know. Um, what, what are we going to do then? <laughs> right. Uh, just trust the Lord. And it's actually one of the coolest things you can ever watch happen. Well, and now you're getting to a follow-up I had with that first question is not only the encouragement that you, you've you given to the day one founding members of a church, but now at the three, four-year mark, um, if you were talking to everybody who has joined in on this mission since then, uh, what encouragement would you give to them? If, if we were having this conversation 25 years ago, I would have to tell them, don't be afraid to jump in. I'd probably have to tell my longtime members, don't be afraid to let somebody else in. There's a little bit of a different dynamic that goes on today and that some people who affiliate with the church, they want to be active and participate in the actual goings on of the church mm -hmm. before they'll ever join. Uh, it, it, it's it's a dramatic shift from what we had back in the 80s or even in, in 2000. You almost don't have to ask people anymore. Do you want to participate? Uh, you may have to talk to them about money and evangelism and regular worship, but uh, a lot of people who come on are already thinking in terms of what can I do here? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if that's generational. I, I don't know what that is. It I, is generational. I would say that's been our experience, at least in my role. Um, there's a lot of people that have wanted to serve and, and expressed interest in serving, like being only attending a few times, which is really cool. So, yeah, that's an interesting point. What it might lead to then, and that's about as far as I get into telling a church how to plan, I, I think you got to create your ministry every year based on the talents that you have identified in that year. Some have gone away, some have arisen that influences what you're going to do in the church in this year. Well, I'll just highlight one thing that I, I know I've told people who have uh, joined in on what we're doing. And it's advice that you gave me the very first time that we sat down over lunch here in Fredericksburg. Uh, you looked at Emily, my wife and I, when when we were the only two people here in Fredericksburg a part of the way and you uh, the first time we met in 2016 and you said, create the church that you want to go to. Sure. And we're brand new. We're three years in and I've always told people that means that we are not uh, established as far as what we do culturally, as what we do programmatically. And so this is your church as much as it is, is my church, as much as it is anyone else's church. And so you have here the opportunity to make it the church that you've always wanted to go to, the church that you've always wanted to be a part of. And just that freedom to use your gifts is something that uh, you've given me as a pastor and I've only hoped to pass on to others. So uh, that, that advice is what I share to people. And if you want to say anything more of what's behind that, feel free, but thank you, first of all, for that. Yeah, I I stole that from Larry Osborne, I think, and maybe he stole it from somebody else. But uh, in, in hindsight, boy, that has served me really well when I started a church back in the 80s, if I've, I believe that. I tried to start a church that I thought uh, was pleasing to somebody else instead of going off of what I was uh, 
good at or what what I, what I wanted. And that's not a selfish thing to say what I wanted. It assumes that you understand the scriptures and, and how to apply in this area. Uh, I actually tried to do some things that I wasn't good at and didn't want and said, and then said, and come join this church. I'm not happy with it. I don't like it and I'm not good at it, but come join the church. <laughs> what, what a silly thing to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I, I would just echo what you said to him about being thankful for the opportunity and the encouragement to, yeah, kind of make, especially in my role, to make the church something that you want to be a part of. Um, and I would say that to any member and anybody that's like on the worship team or helps with setup and all of those things, like this is, yeah, your church. Make it what you want to do. If there's an idea you have or something you want to see, do not hesitate to like ask me or ask pastor about it because like we want to make that happen. Um, and I don't know if we've expressed that super often. I mean, you've expressed that to me when I first got here. Um, and I'm thankful for that, but yeah, just that idea is to, important. To continually remind people to that. Cause in our foundations class, our membership class, that's the last thing I usually close with is telling people that. Um, but to repeat that, um, whether, whether you're a day one person or just yesterday, it, it's all the same. And, uh, uh, walk into any Sunday, into any group, into any event, any thing that we do with those eyes that say, here, here's an opportunity for me to do what I want or what I'd like. Um, and you have a church that's going to support you with that. You talked a lot about people just wanting to make this church something uh, that they want to be a part of, that it's the church that they have always wanted to do. And inherent is that is the idea of using your gifts and using your talents and the things that you're good at. You want to say more about that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I think something has to occur personally and annually in, in keeping with what John's position is and, and really what you as a whole church should be doing is uh, – assessing what the talents are that we have now. And by talents, I don't just mean Sunday school teachers and choir directors and church council things, you know, that where you're trying to take human beings and plug them into constitutional roles um, or, or traditional service roles. I'm talking about, in addition to the ability to teach Sunday school, but does somebody have the gift of encouragement? Does somebody have uh, the opportunities to commun uh, engage the community in a meaningful way? Uh, sometimes it's a hobby. Uh, a couple of the churches I've been working with recently, they started men's Bible studies. Uh, one of them had uh, combined a love of shooting guns with uh, brewing beer in a Bible study that they could invite their male friends to. Now, I, anytime you mess with that order, I think you probably got problems, right? <laughs> so first they would study the Bible and then they would shoot their guns, and then they would have some beers that they had all made afterward. But th that was a natural extension, not only of their love of God's Word, but two hobbies that they happened to share, and so did some of their unchurched friends, and they brought them in, into that sort of thing. So that annual assessment of talents, starting with everybody age 12 and older, and, and plugging that in accordingly, in that regard— when you do that on an individual level, I think you find out not usually each year that you're going to change, but over the course of five years, the type of church that you become could change. And by type, I'm not talking denomination, orthodox or unorthodox. 
uh, the, the five types would be, <coughs> are, are we a congregation that primarily does worship? We have a lot of talent that lends itself to good worship. Are we an education-based church? We still have church services, but we're really heavy into adult-level education of all sorts, college things, teen things, offering classes perhaps to uh, community groups. So that's the second type of church. A third type is evangelistic. We have worship, we have studies, but what we really do well is invite unchurched people and get them into a Bible information class, and this becomes their church home. And then there's social type A and social type B. Um, social type A would be the church where you got a lot of things going on, like uh, the co-ed softball team we were talking about. Is it going to be co-ed? Okay. And, and by the way, if, if you do so. that, the only rule that you should apply to who can be on the team is one half of the team will be non-members. You invite non-members, preferably really good players. <laughs> you go and recruit them. So they got volleyball things going on. They got sports things, bowling. You know, they they just do all these social things. Social way. Yeah. Minor league baseball. To the extent, you not only go to the game once a year as a congregation, but maybe you take over helping the grounds crew. Mm. And you just really heavily get into that. And then there's social type B. It's kind of rare, but I have seen well examples of that, that you become the church in town that's really cool to go to. And and so business leaders, um, economic leaders, city council, all those kind of people go to that church. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just a phenomenon that does occur. Sometimes when you assess your personal talents, say in 2020, we were heavy on worship talent, and then maybe a lot of our music people um, went away. But boy, we got a lot of people who love to form small groups, and a lot of people who have the gift of teaching, and all of a sudden you become an education church. I, I think that's important to pay attention to at least every two or three years. Well, I'm fascinated by this for a lot of different reasons. First, the how do you discover it? And I think you'd answer that simply as by talking to each individual and what their talents are. Is that correct? Yep. The second question that I have with this is you're talking about doing it every year and even switching up the type of emphasis that you have each year. And sub-question could you be worship and evangelistic? Could you be social A and education? Um, you're nodding your head yes towards that too. And so what you're not what you're not necessarily doing is massively changing what you do as a ministry or massively changing uh, the programs or the vision or the goals that you have in the medium term. But what you're, what you're talking about is just really making best use out of people's gifts and as a congregation as a whole. Yeah. The, those first four things that I mentioned as far as types of churches, none of those ever go away entirely. It's just understanding what are we really good at and gifted at. Uh, so, for instance, the way they tie in is if you have those various sports teams or societal clubs or beer brewing things that I talked about earlier, that that morphs very easily into evangelism thing. Mm -hmm. So you, mm -hmm. you keep the evangelism going, but you just discovered one of the best ways we can do outreach in our community and amongst our friends is by 
these gifts that we have athletically. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's really this is really exciting for me to think about and also for us to put into practice because uh, moment of confession here, we haven't done the gift assessment things. And the reason is because I, I look at everything that we're doing and we're doing a lot. And we already covered how, uh, you know, during this season of coronavirus, plugging in volunteers is difficult. And there's a danger that we burn out volunteers uh, in any capacity. And so one thing that I, I really worry about is we, we do a uh, kind of gift assessment thing and it's this great exercise but then it just sh- sits on the shelf and sure. nothing ever comes about it. And I know that we've had members who have vocalized that fear because they've they've experienced that before. And they're like, great, I just told you I'm good at A, B, and C, and there's nothing to follow that up with. But what you're saying is, you know, maybe there's not an opportunity to use gift X or Y this year, but collectively uh, we have gift Z at this church and together that's a that's a thing that we can do am i am i understanding this rightly yeah and and it's it doesn't happen overnight it it takes time to convince people trust me if we gather this information sooner or later we're going to also try and make use of that gift and it's also saying if you give me that information are you the type of personality that wants to run with it? it it if you're good at uh your your hobby is baking and cooking and there's a lot of uh millennials out there and and now gen xers that don't know how to cook a fig and would like to learn how to cook that wouldn't be you your chicken was wonderful tonight thank you all right and emily's a really good cook but a lot of them don't know how to bake and this happened in a church i asked a group of older ladies who wanted to get younger in their congregation what are you good at they said well we got an industrial kitchen and we all know how to bake Said, you got any young women in town that don't know how to bake? And uh, they're home in most cases in that town. I I knew this. Their husbands are off working miles away. The ladies are home alone. Uh, They'd like to be able to cook better. They just don't know how. You ever thought of marrying those two realities? You got time. You got a facility. Why don't you invite these lonely women who want to learn how to cook, run some classes? There you go. It's a great example, and everywhere will be different. But it's the process of doing that mm-hmm. that is almost as beneficial as whatever comes out of it, um, because it's not necessarily tied to uh, a brew club, a bake club, or you name it. it. It is whatever it is that comes out of it, and to not do it is is the real uh, the real shame, the real mm-hmm. tragedy. Uh, to do it, whatever it is, you do it, and let's say you do it, and and you're you're all in on it for a year. Um, there's no there's no harm done when you reassess the next year and you say that worked yeah or maybe it didn't mm-hmm. and that's okay I'd love to tell you that I came up with that thought on my own that that one was forced on me as were all the good things that I ever did in a parish but lay people taught me that and one time you guys know what a whiteboard is? You ever heard of such a thing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we yeah, have those. All right, so we had a big it's old- It's the thing on the computer, right? Where you yeah, use no, your- no, 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 oh, no. Okay. The, the original one, the <laughs> one that God gave us in the Garden of Eden, that whiteboard. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. Uh, we're, we're talking about this. We'd grown from a church, went from being 50 to being 250. And we were struggling with how do you plug all these people into these constitutional roles and stuff like that. And uh, one of my guys, really sharp guy, 
went up to the whiteboard and just started scribbling the the talents he knew and some of the names he knew within the congregation. And he said, isn't that really the issue? These are the talents, and they don't fit into things like what you're talking about. So we'll find others to fill in those mandatory roles, but how are we going to use these talents up there? Bingo, change the whole church. Begin a much healthier church when we start doing that. And I know it's it's got to be right because maybe five years after that, I was sitting at some gathering in Milwaukee uh, with three guys, and we weren't necessarily friends. We just ended up at the same table. All four of us had been church planters. And we just struck up the conversation around one question. If you had to do it over, what would you do different? And before I answered, those three answered, and they all said, the next person that I would have got, the next staff person, would not have been a musician, no offense, would not have been a secretary. I'd have got somebody in charge of uh, assessing talents and implementing talents, which is why I was happy to hear that you've done that to a degree. And so then I chimed in. I said, yeah, I guess I'd do that too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Mark, we've taken the time to talk about a lot of different things that are maybe uh, uh, overview things or 3,000, 30,000 foot level things as as far as it goes with the mission of the church. Let me ask you some things specific to where the way is at in this season of ministry. Uh, We're at a position now where we are looking to purchase a ministry center of our own to establish permanent roots here in the community of Fredericksburg, which is something we're really excited about. What, uh, what advice do you have for a congregation who is on the precipice of, of moving into that, that stage of their existence? Yeah. Oh boy. Multifaceted question there. I just think in terms of what's changed and I guess somebody would say it's been a long career. It's 37 years I've been doing this, but that's a short time, right? So in the last 20 years, there's a dramatic change in building usage, church architecture, and most of it I think is for the good. Um, Size... It, everybody has come to understand that uh, building size is shrinking, and just need, not just because the visible church is shrinking, but because realistically, um, what was so comfortable for baby boomers to go into a theater of twelve to twenty thousand seats, like the Houston Rockets old basketball places, now where he seats nineteen thousand people in that stadium every weekend and if you look at who's in the audience it's it's my age and older and we loved big scenes like that and big auditoriums because we could remain anonymous you know we could pray and pay and go away is the old mantra we didn't have to know anybody so what one trend that's changed is uh the smaller size of worship space i i think is is here to stay and conversely I think we have to look at some bigger buildings. People will say, well, that would be contradictory, but especially in large metro areas like this, up and down both coasts in major metro areas where land is expensive and buildings are expensive, we got to look at shared space. So think in terms of at least 8,000 feet, if not 10,000 or 12,000 feet, where you can have worship space that maybe is only going to accumulate 2,000 of your feet. 
you're not going to build a big auditorium. You only need seating for 150 to 170 because you're going to offer multiple services. And you're going to be a congregation max of 500 people someday. Beyond 500, Lutherans don't do well, but that's another subject. So that's one opinion. A smaller worship space, but a bigger building. What goes on the rest of that building? You're, um, you're going to need space for uh, leasing it out to somebody. You're not going to lease out your worship area. You're not going to lease out your church area and your own uh, educational spaces. You need to lease out space to generate some income in order to be able to afford the mortgage. It's, it's almost unheard of anymore to be able to do a building whether it's an existing facility or raw land and putting up a new building for under two and a half million dollars. Just doesn't happen. And more typically the price tag nowadays is getting closer to three million. And we have churches in our church body who carry mortgages in excess of two million dollars. That, that the math just doesn't work uh, typically. So you're gonna have to have space that you can lease out. And I think that that's a cultural phenomenon that's with us. Uh, industry has discovered it, and I think the church has to discover it too. And there's a way to make that really beneficial for the church, not only in terms of nuts and bolts and finances, but also in terms of mission yep. to partner mm -hmm. with different uh, groups that, that certainly don't have the same mission as the church, but that at the same time can also maybe amplify it in, in certain niche respects. Right. And, and what you get from it, I, I think simply are two words that start with R-E. Um, you, you get reputation and you get relationships. Mm -hmm. yeah, you partner up with other groups in the community. You get to have the reputation, which most churches do not enjoy uh, because they've ex essentially excluded themselves from community. You have said by sharing space, we are part of the community. Hmm. And then relationship, you got people walking in and out of your facility all day long. Even if it's not a kiddie-based thing like a preschool, you got a bunch of adults walking in and out making use of whatever that entity is that's renting space from you. Yeah, You're around, you see them, you end up having relationships. You, you send a loud and clear message, this is a different kind of church. We've got a counseling area over here that we don't run. It's run by a private contractor. Uh, that sends a message to those people. Maybe the church is not such a bad place. I think that's huge, the connection to the community, because it's not enough anymore to just, for any church to just say, we're here, people should just know to come here if they want to be in a church. You have to be a part of the community. You have to be, I mean, Fredericksburg's a great example. We have a very small town mindset when it comes to the downtown area, the businesses, you know, people know each other. And if we aren't knowing people and being known by our community, nobody's going to pay attention to us at all. Right. It'd be very easy to ignore. I think it's a challenging thing to like you. Everybody says they want to be a part of the community and no one really knows how. And, and you can say what you will, but this is kind of an easy way to be a part of the community is to offer a shared space and really be in contact with other businesses. Right. And here, here's the contradiction, because some would say, why would you have a building at all? Because this other factor is so important. 
uh, you're not going to get everybody who come in and is going to come into your building just because you're there. They're not going to try you out unlike they would have 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And even if you're doing shared space, they aren't necessarily going to say, well, that's cool. I think I'll go in there. Uh, you're still going to have to go off campus is the term away from our facility and do things in the community that are both relational building and in some cases evangelistic. So case in point, when I got to wear a toga here, is, is Mike still around? Is he going to watch us? Yeah, Mike's definitely around. He'll, he'll watch Okay, us. so Mike can give his testimony. <laughs> um, I use that example across the country talking to churches. If, if you don't know what else to do, uh, go do something crazy like that. Stand out in the cold on Good Friday in togas. But was that just to build relationships? That that was evangelistic. We were handing out stuff that talked about Jesus. We were going to do something there. If I remember right, we had more people at Good Friday service than we did for Easter Sunday, right? We did, ma'am. And that was that was really interesting for us. And yet, um, something we celebrate. Yeah. So it, it's not just going out there to pick up garbage in the streets or help run marathons or something like that. There are things that you can do out in the community that have a definite evangelistic tone to them and aren't just building relationships. We're still talking about buildings, but obviously yeah. the ministry and the mission of the church that transcends that. You said something interesting before, um, the idea of large buildings, small spaces for the sake of shared partnerships with community partners. Um, And you also said multi-services. Something I read actually just yesterday was a book review uh, where someone was promoting a single idea throughout an entire book. And it was that uh, the author cautioned the idea of multi-services, but said, when you get to that point, pursue multi-site. And you can push back on that. uh, The idea, the premise if you want to, but I know also something that you are passionate about is the same conclusion the author reached, which was multi-saint ministry is a uh, good idea. Uh, Can you unpack that? Yeah. Most people, when they hear multi-services, they're thinking right away, well, we go from our 9.15 or our 10 o'clock service, whatever that one was, to now the traditional Lutheran thing, 8 o'clock, 10.30, right? I I, I think that's the dumbest thing you could possibly do. Um, Borrow a page from Catholicism, Saturday night service. Uh, I did Monday nights for years as, as a second service. I don't know if Monday nights would work anymore. Friday night, I don't know if that would work, especially with the traffic you get around here and things like that. But think in terms of a Saturday afternoon or a Saturday evening service in addition to Sunday morning, or think in, at, at the very least in terms of a Sunday morning and Sunday night service. Perhaps they have two different flavors, same sermon, different music, different vibe or something like that. That's an idea we were ready to launch before COVID started. So we're looking forward to that. Because like it or not, people want flexibility and they want a little bit of variety. And within the gospel, there's room for flexibility and variety. I don't think it's unscriptural for them to ask, nor is it unscriptural for us to offer, as long as the message is still spot on. So that's a thought on multi-services. That's a solid amount. Multi-services. Let's explore the idea of multi-site and just the place that that has 
in yeah. 2021 and beyond as, as we kind of bring together a lot of different themes that we've talked about. Um, how do you see that playing out in just different ways churches pursue reaching uh, different communities? That, that's a lead into where nobody knows where the multi-site thing is going. It was a creative thing that began in evangelicalism about 25 years ago, and it made all the sense in the world uh, to use economy of scale, uh, repetition of resources, uh, and quit building these mega campuses where people were feeling isolated and alienated, go with smaller campuses and a variety of campuses, and just call them one entity. You're one entity, but with multi-site. But what's happened in the last five years? Some of the major players who introduced that idea around the country uh, in Chicago, in South Carolina, in California have blown up the multi-sites. Um, Mecklenburg, down there with James Emery White, I think they were up to 12. I believe I could be misquoting that. He blew it all up and kept some of them, but I think he went down to two or three and it was driven by a cultural phenomenon, at least in part, is that even though they had their own site, they didn't feel like they were making enough local decisions. And that's a huge factor, a little bit for my generation, but even more so uh, for Gen X and then millennials, is we're local, we make our own decisions, determine where our money's going. When you're in a multi-site, all your money is still funneled to one pot. And sooner or later, somebody feels as though we're not they getting don't have our that share. Out autonomy to to do what they want in their community. Yeah. So I think some people will continue to buy into the idealism of multi-site and it will work. And in other places, it's not going to work. And how to tell the difference depends on the personalities of pastors, the leaders, and, and ultimately the, the community and the people that you got there. How strongly do they feel about absolute local autonomy? that you shouldn't do a multi-site because sooner or later you're going to have problems. Well, I think, and correct me if I'm naive, but I think there has to be a way where we use the the best gifts of the church and the most positive aspects of doing multi-site shared resources, uh, shared human resources, uh, and at the same time empower individual churches in the same way that we hope to empower individual people to use their faith, use their gifts in their God-given vocations. Um, but is there a way to capitalize on the things that we can't do as a medium to small-sized church, but we can do as a couple of medium-sized churches, but still give local areas, local communities, the autonomy and the decision-making uh, freedom to do what they do best in their yeah. local context? I'll give give you one more thought on that, and then I'll shut up, promise. Because uh, I might have given the impression that I'm now against multi-sites. I'm not. Of the 11 new things that I'm involved with, most of which are coming in for funding this spring, five of those are multi-site ideas that are being worked and massaged in different ways. And I, I think the most stark message that I have to give them with all the love I can muster is that if you're going to do this, if you're going to be multi-site, uh, to fight against that desire for autonomy, which oftentimes becomes self-centeredness, you're going to have to be even more servant-minded than if you were doing a separate daughter congregation. It's already hard to start a daughter congregation, right? Set aside your 
your preferences and your attitude and serve other people. If you're going to do multi-site, you're going to have to be even more servant-minded and cooperative mm -hmm. with that other group of people 10, 20 miles away. Yeah, that's just a lot more work. Yeah. It's a lot more conversations, a lot more, you know, growing pains to figure that out. And, um, but it, it's the right thing in that it, it's probably better stewardship of talents and money and, and facility in, in some areas. Where that is, I, I don't know. I do know that earlier on now, when we talk about starting a place, we have to talk through the pros and cons of second site versus daughter congregation much sooner. I don't think I had to do that with this group here. There, there was never a thought of the church in Fredericksburg would be the second site of it's Trinity, right? Yeah, and, well, and that's the context that we have here, right? And so as you talk about daughtering versus multi-site, I think about Trinity and Trinity is in every way a church that my family would love to go to. In fact, we did go to for the first couple of months that we were out here. And that church in every way has been uh, incredibly generous, incredibly supportive of the work that we're doing down here. And it's just a joy to be related to them in every way. And yet we're separated by 30 miles or right. 25 miles that takes who knows how long given the traffic. And so every different context would be evaluated based on their culture and their different different factors that are impacting that. But yeah, could we do multi-site? Sure, we could. And yet to do that, it would, it would require a lot more work just as a case study. Agreed. Do you guys have anything else to work in as I close out? No, I'd just say thank you. I've never done a podcast before. <laughs> well, Mark, we, we thank you for doing it because I, uh, I'll speak personally first, but on behalf of many others, um, every time that you're here, it's a great encouragement to me, my wife, my family. I know John, the Boomhoffers. Uh, we just appreciate the work that you do for us. And even though you don't live in Fredericksburg, although we are certainly rolling, rolling out the red carpet when you and Lynn want to move here and, and be a part of our church every given Sunday. Um, minor league baseball. There you go. Minor <laughs> league baseball. And Lynn, there's also apartments next door to the minor league baseball stadium. So there you go. Um, but it, it is just a great encouragement. And I, you just need to know that and also know just what you do for so many different pastors. There's not a there's not a pastor's conference or get together that I go to and you're also part of um, where someone will be having a conversation near you next to you. And it's a group of guys just saying that guy is really encouraging to me. That guy has really been a gift uh, to me and my ministry, because I think you've been doing this, you said for 14 years now and 50 to 60 different guys a year, the impact that you're making on so many people is uh, tremendous, not only for the pastors, but the people that they have the privilege to serve Jesus with. So, so thank you for not only doing that as a mission counselor in a very unique role, but also uh, I thank you for taking time to sit down and chat with us. More than welcome. It's a privilege. Really